Professor Greenblatt, congratulations on winning the Holberg Prize. Thank you very much. In the Holberg Committee statement, they pointed towards the diversity of your accomplishments, citing not only your position as an eminent scholar on both Shakespeare and more generally the Renaissance, but also your ability to communicate with wider non-academic audiences and your role in the development of the theoretical movement, often called New Historicism, which they state, and I quote, radically transformed the practices of the humanities. I'd like to start with your part in the development of New Historicism, uh, a movement in which you played a, a crucial role and for which you have offered the alternative name of, of, uh, of uh, cultural poetics. Such movements are usually quite complex phenomena and, and may in some ways resist simple historical narratives. Uh, but most typically, New Historicism is said to develop out of the work of a group of scholars working together at Berkeley, the University of California, in the early 1980s. How would you describe the beginnings and, and perhaps also the collective ideals of this group? I guess I would go back to the 60s and 70s, uh, to the time in which the group of us were ourselves students or very young assistant professors, and to say that uh, literary education and more generally uh, the humanities in the mid-20th century was uh, dominated by uh, what was known as formalism. Uh, and the practice was centered on trying to uh, learn how to describe how an object, a literary object, an art object was made without any reference to the maker, the world in which it was made, the original consumers. Those were regarded as utterly irrelevant, but they regarded as quite marginal to being able to say how the thing was made. Describing work of art said one of my very distinguished uh, the professors in my department at Yale, a man named William Wimsett, is like, it's like describing a pudding or a machine, he said. You want to say how a machine works. You're not interested in the uh, marital history of the machine maker or uh, the uh, the historical forces at work and the culture that was raising, that was growing the grain uh, or the wheat for the pudding. So the, that was the practice that we were trained in and it had its virtues, uh, uh, real virtues. Uh, now as I get uh, along in years, I see the virtues more clearly than I saw at the time. I was very impatient with them uh, at the time, but I did have a very uh, stringent education of this kind. And then in the 70s, leading up to the period that you described, the 70s was a period of enormous ferment, and the ferment was at its uh, particular overheated state uh, in Berkeley, California, uh, and it just seemed uh, ridiculous and irrelevant to spend all our time describing the internal workings of a work of art as if there was nothing around it as if it bore no relation to the culture that was producing and consuming it, or for that matter, to the world in which it was now being received, the world in which there was tear gas floating over our campus, in which we were marching, shouting various slogans or whatever. So we had to try to think of an alternative way of uh, going about uh, the work of understanding uh, the creation, the making and uh, consuming of art. And we did so by as I thought of it at the time, opening the windows, letting in some air, 
uh, finding out what was going on outside, or for that matter, inside the, the, the artist who was making these objects and the people who were originally uh, enjoying them, or for that matter, ourselves. That's how it actually originated. And it was a historic, I mean, one of the most important dimensions was the historical um, context, if you like, of the text, um, looking at them in a, in a dialogue with, with the historical context. And yet, the movement has often been described as new historicism to distinguish it from, from traditional historicist approaches. That's right. I mean, because Charlie, well, the way it worked was that the, there had, of course, been a great tradition. It had been, to some extent, shouldered aside by formalism, but there had been a tradition of of trying to, uh, well, let's say, call it antiquarianism, uh, of uh, trying to collect uh, as fully as possible a kind of archive and construct an archive for understanding the actual historical setting of works of art. It actually had, it grew up alongside the development of the great historical novels of the 19th century. I mean, Walter Scott, or uh, where you uh, take great examples, I mean, or, or George Eliot, where you actually grasp that the lives of individuals was in some relation to the, you know, the, the larger uh, political and cultural forces in a culture. If you think about Eliot's Middle March or uh, uh, Scott's Waverley novels. Um, and similarly, uh, literary art criticism was quite interested in those local moments, but they always seemed, or at least they seemed to us perhaps arrogantly in the uh, 1970s, they seemed precisely to be a kind of historical study that closed off the past and the kind of hermetic ceiling enclosure so that uh, you did indeed find out something about the Elizabethan period, about what uh, Kenilworth was like or this or that, but you had no sense of why you'd care about this, why you'd be interested in it, what the class issues were then that might relate to class issues now, or gender issues or anything, religious conflicts that might have some current life, why you'd want to know. And so we wanted to ask that question at the same time that we wanted to if, insofar as we could, uh, to grapple with, how should we say, the antiquarian uh, setting, we also wanted to ask, who wants to know? Why do we need this information? What effect does this information have on what we are getting from this work of art? Who are we? And why are we asking these questions? So we wanted to have the two time frames we didn't, uh, at work at the same time. We didn't want to pretend, as it were, that we could project ourselves back into the 18th century in England or into the uh, 16th century in Ireland, and as if we were those people without our own identity and our own particular questions. We wanted somehow to create a conversation or a dialectic between that past and this present. And it was the tension between those two that seemed to us part of what we wanted to get at. That's what was the new in new historicism. One, one of the things we today associate with 60s and, and, and 70s is, of course, um, you know, civil rights movements in America and uh, a big sense of, of youth culture and, and, and rebellion. Um, and, and, and political rebellion 
is one of the topics that, that often has, has, has come up in, in new historicist readings of, of, of texts. And there's been quite a debate whether, whether new historicism as a movement, I mean, it, it, it always grapples with these issues of, of political resistance, or at least it, it, it does when that is a, a relevant issue, uh, but whether uh, new historicism in some way closes down the possibility of, of political uh, subversion, uh, key word, um, in, in the entrance of, of uh, containment. And how do you see that issue? It's something which you grapple quite a lot in some of your, your first books, and, yes. uh, and it, it is a, an important issue. It, I was certainly obsessed with the question in my own time and place in the uh, late 1970s and 80s, uh, particularly obsessed with it when uh, the possibility of radical change uh, seemed to uh, close down. So I was quite interested in the fact, uh, actually in, in both sides of this, I was uh, fascinated by, and new historicism more broadly, was enabled by the sense that in some way everything was up for grabs. Nothing needed to be the way it was. Everything could be reimagined or reconstituted. And so we had that moment, that incredibly powerful, heady, largely insane moment in the uh, 1970s of thinking, everything is on the table. Uh, we can renegotiate everything from scratch, all relations, uh, all sexual relations, class relations, political relations. We, we don't need to take anything uh, as a given. Um, and I still feel the crazy force of this. It was, it was, I was aware at the time, I have to say, even though I was caught up in it, I was aware at the time of its comic uh, dimensions or of its implausible dimensions, let's put it that way. But nonetheless, I was like everyone of my generation, or maybe not everyone, of, of most people of my generation, and particularly people who lived uh, within a hundred mile radius of Berkeley, California, uh, I was very much touched by that power. But by the 1980s, it was also already very clear uh, that uh, the possibility of infinite renewal uh, was uh, less uh, uh, real than it, it uh, had seemed. And I indeed remember, I can't remember the year, could probably reconstruct it, uh, but in which a, a famous Irish um, diplomat named Conor Cruz O'Brien came to uh, Berkeley. He was someone who was uh, in the Congo at the time of Lumumba, was a remarkable fellow and also an interesting writer um, and with a, his own very complicated political relation to things, which we won't, uh, 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 we won't try to reconstruct now. But I remember all hell was breaking loose in Berkeley at the time. I can't even, I really can't fully convey how crazy it all was. But it was the time of the, of, uh, after something called People's Park and there were, had actually been someone shot uh, uh, on a rooftop uh, and even killed. It was a struggle over a, over a park uh, and whether the park should be made public space or made private space and everything was in chaos in Berkeley and there were helicopters flying overhead and there were police cars and sirens and there were people marching and, uh, and, and flinging rocks uh, through the windows of the, 
of the Bank of America building, and it really was as wild as anything I can ever remember in my life. And I was, I can't remember why, but I was squiring Conor O'Brien around the campus during all of this because he was giving a lecture and he had been invited by a friend of mine who was the chair of my department, uh, a man named Tom Flanagan. Uh, and I was squiring, asked to squire Conor Cruz O'Brien around and I said, with a certain kind of fatuous pride, I suppose, uh, well, Mr. O'Brien, what do you think of this? And he said, and I can't do the accent, uh, he said, uh, oh, I think it's a pastoral ballet on a revolutionary theme. Incredible phrase, a pastoral ballet on a revolutionary theme. And I suddenly felt the force of the deflation. I mean, this is someone who had, who had seen much, much more in his life than I had seen in mine. Uh, and that feeling that what had looked like a total transformation of everything actually was a kind of well, maybe not pastoral ballet, but was, was less root and branch uh, than it had looked, which must be the experience at a small dimension of what cultures go through when they have also much larger revolutions than ours. By the 1970s, that was very clear, so that the relationship between subversion and containment, between political eruption and the, and the, con con the continuation of the way things are, uh, seemed to me a a um, gripping problem. And already at that point, it was, uh, as critics of mine have observed, it wasn't that I was so clearly uh, and, and unequivocally on the side of ultimate revolution. I was no Maoist uh, at, at that moment, but the, um, I was interested in, in how it is that things that look like they're everything, in moments at which everything looks like it's going to change, turn out actually to get close down on to return to some kind of, of ordinariness or quasi-normality. And it was easy, or if not easy, in any case, I found it exciting to think about these issues as I usually think about these issues in relation to the things I was studying, and particularly with Shakespeare, because after all, what I'm describing is often the very structure of Shakespeare plays, particularly comedies in which everything seems up for grabs, all hell is breaking loose, the world seems to be turned upside down. But in the end, things are returning to some kind of order. On several occasions, you've stated that new historicism uh, was less of a, a dogmatic theory than an interpretive practice. There's a certain, um, certain flexibility in how, for instance, this, this issue of, of, of containment uh, and subversion is 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 attacked, um, and and you've 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 stressed this, but perhaps uh, after those 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 early readings, which which some people interpreted as as rather conservative, in Bent, um, generally um, this this uh, interpretive dimension uh, is interesting in in how methodologically there seems to be a bit of a signature effect in how new historicists have tended to. Uh, for one thing, upset the traditional historicist thesis of the literary text pre presenting a, a foreground and the uh, historical context being a, a static background, which you referred to uh, earlier. And often this, this upsetting of this uh, background-foreground model uh, comes about by coupling 
initial historical anecdotes in a surprising way with uh, canonized literary texts. And there's, at first sight, often a, a seemingly enormous distance between the, the anecdote and the text that, that reminds me of uh, André Breton's definition of surrealist metaphor as a practice which is most vital when there's a largest distance between the two things being compared, like a, like a, a, a battery with a negative pole and a, a, a positive pole. Is there something of a, a similar avant-garde legacy in new historicism, a willingness to, to engage in a kind of academic risk-taking? I think there is a, such a legacy. I think uh, what new historicism faced as a challenge, tried to grapple with as a challenge, is how to keep uh, literary criticism, cultural criticism more broadly, from rounding up the usual suspects, from seeming like business as usual. Uh, and it's extremely easy for it to become business as usual, and that doesn't matter what the uh, method is, whether it's uh, uh, strict formalism or older historicism or new historicism or Marxist uh, uh, criticism it's, or, or deconstruction. It's quite easy with any of these methods for it to curdle and freeze. Uh, very quickly. And then it loses all its interest, but more importantly, then it betrays what it has come to try to understand in the first place, which is how is it that the works of art remain alive and interesting when their circumstances, as so often happens, uh, have changed drastically, in, in which you no longer have the same structure of things in which you, uh, uh, the assumptions of the culture have shifted, in which everything from which the work uh, apparently uh, derives has fallen away, and yet the work remains vital and alive. In some sense, the older historicism has a big problem. It's not that the newer historicism has solved it magically, but the older historicism has a very big problem of this kind, as did Marxist criticism. Uh, because it, in effect, seems to freeze the work in its own frame. Uh, it it uh, creates a kind of hermetically sealed environment of historical forces that are producing the work. And what New Historicism tried to do in its own method was to break that container, to make it seem uh, like the energy was still erupting and emerging from the work. Uh, and it did, there were a number of different ways in which we tried uh, to do so, but uh, I, at a certain point, was trying to do so by, uh, precisely by making it more difficult for myself, by not uh, invoking the usual heroes and villains, uh, by finding something that looked very far away and then disclosing that actually uh, there was a, odd and surprising connection. Sometimes when I'd go too far out, I had difficulty coming all the way back there. So uh, uh, and there, have been, there were moments at which I, was, uh, I failed abjectly and moments at which I can feel myself teetering at the edge of uh, failure and almost doing it, but not quite. But then at certain moments, the excitement, I, I can't even fully convey to you how some, sometimes the writing is quite difficult, but the sheer excitement and pleasure when it actually begins to happen. When I became uh, alert to uh, 
Harriet's brief and true report of the newfound land of Virginia, a work about the Algonquian Indians. Uh, and I realized that I could go from there to Shakespeare's Henry IV plays, to what Prince Hal was up to, in a way that was not, that was surprising to me, was exciting, and I hope it would be exciting for the reader, but in other words, that I was being able, I was able to get the current to cross or get the wires to touch and a spark to come. Uh, and those are thrilling moments because they don't uh, feel routine. Uh, they don't feel like they're at risk of betraying what makes the work uh, so vital and exciting. You, you refer to, to book history. Um, and I think some of the, um, the most gripping parts of your, your book, um, The Swerve, How the World Became Modern, is when you you look at, in a way, at the um, the discovery of the book and the cult of the book, if you like, at, at the beginning of the, the modern age. Um, how how important is the the material medium for literature or perhaps even other cultural expressions? And and a more limited question too, uh, which people are asking ourselves, people are asking themselves today, is is there a future for the book? Uh, in some ways, that, that the swerve almost reads like a defense, a, a love story about, about a book. Well, the medium is, I mean, the actual material of the medium is itself, we know, hugely important. Though we often don't know in what way its importance will play out. I will give you an example. Um, the oldest work of literature in the world, the oldest works of literature in the world, the oldest writings in the world are uh, on cuneiform tablets from uh, Mesopotamia, from what's now Iraq, mostly. Um, and the reason for that is that um, in those first cities, uh, in um, uh, the, uh, along the Tigris and Euphrates, um, the material uh, in which, when writing itself was in its nascent stage, the material that was used was, was clay. Okay, so uh, they made marks in the clay with a, with a um, wedge-like stick. Um, cuneus is a wedge in Latin. A wedge-like stick produces these cuneiform marks, wedge-like marks. Uh, which w was their uh, earliest script, and they kept th uh, their records of how much uh, uh, barley, how many irrigation ditches were dug, uh, uh, how many camels were sold, and so forth and so on. And those, many of those records uh, survive from the earliest days of Uruk, the first city 5,000 years ago, and so, so forth. Okay, why is this interesting? Because... Um, we also get from that the very first works of literature that survive uh, in, because of course there were many, many works of, many stories that were infinite numbers of stories going back thousands and thousands of years before then, but they're oral stories. Uh, so the question is why do those survive? Well, the answer is that um, the clay tablets were collected um, in, in archives, the way we would collect books. Uh, and when those cities, ancient cities, were destroyed uh, by their enemies, when Nineveh was burned down by its enemies, uh, or Babylon, 
the city itself, when it burned down, turned into a kind of kiln. And so the thing that destroys every other medium, that burns up paper or papyrus, that destroys, that will, when our cities burn, uh, destroy our digital archives, they turned those tablets, uh, they fired those tablets, they, they made them permanent. And the tablets survived in the ruins under those great gigantic mounds of, of rubble in Mesopotamia. And with a fired tablet, you couldn't scrape them off very easily, they'd fall apart. You could break them, but there's just mud. So they weren't worth anything to anyone, so they survived. And that's why the oldest story that survives, I think, in, from all of our species, from humanity, is Gilgamesh uh, from uh, 3,500 years ago, let's say, because it, of the medium it was written in, of those clay tablets. And each of our media, as it were, has its magic of a comparable kind. The paper certainly has its magic of, of the kind, as you say, that I wrote my book in a curious way in celebration of, the magic of that, um, of those papyruses and parchments uh, that actually can carry information far, far longer than our digital uh, mode of uh, recording information so far has been able to do. We'll see what happens. Uh, but our digital ways of doing things have other, a very different kind of magic attached to them, but very different from the one that we were traditionally engaged with. I don't feel a kind of, of how should we say, reactionary celebration of paper, give me paper and nothing else. I live in the same digital world that you live in. But we have to understand that it's always, it's a trade-off. As it was a trade-off to move from those clay tablets to paper. Uh, and there are huge advantages, but there are also disadvantages uh, to them. I, at a certain point in my life, I was interested in the dreams I was having. And I would keep a record of my dreams. What I would do would be to scribble them down on a piece of paper, half legibly, when I was still awake, just waking up in the morning. And then I would go to my room, and I had a very early computer called a K-Pro uh, with big floppy disks. And I would type my dream on, uh, dreams onto, my, onto those floppy disks. Uh, and so I have now somewhere around in my house dozens, maybe hundreds, of totally unreadable floppy disks, there's no device. I mean, maybe if I sent it to the Pentagon, they could decipher these, but they're now completely inaccessible to me in a way if I just save the pieces of paper in which I'd written them, I could still see what they were. Professor Greenblatt, um, you're a, a renowned scholar of William Shakespeare, and this year has seen Shakespeare being given a lot of attention worldwide, indeed, uh, even more attention than usual, if that's possible, uh, due to the 400th anniversary uh, of his death. His work has an astounding popularity and influence given the distance in time that separates us uh, from his life. And you've talked about earlier your, your, your fascination about texts and, and, um, and indeed cultural objects that survive over time. Why, why do you think Shakespeare lives on in this way? There are a variety of different explanations, possible explanations. Uh, ranging from the sinister ones, that it's because of people like me, academics, uh, who, who keep it going, which is clearly not true, uh, or because of British imperialism, which might have been true for a while, but it's clearly not true now. Uh, I think 
it's because, insofar as it has any explanation that's available to me, because of the remarkable life of the works on stage, in film, that is to say, they are still alive that way. Not, they're not simply uh, classics uh, that uh, take the form of compulsory chapel, as we say. Uh, but they are, they are pleasure-giving of a very intense kind. Uh, and the pleasure-giving power is actually clearer it, for people like uh, you and me. The, the pleasure is also clear, I think, on the page. But for most ordinary people, the pleasure is most immediately apparent uh, on stage or on film. That is to say, they come alive very uh, excite in exciting and impressive ways that way. And so maybe the way to think about it is to think about Shakespeare not simply in terms of the person who wrote the words on the page, because actually also Shakespeare is a global phenomenon and exists much more in translation these days than he does in English. Um, but to think about someone who understood in some remarkable way how to, um, how to generate works that keep renewing themselves. Renewable objects, self-renewing objects. And that's an incredible achievement. That is to say, less the fixed, perfect thing. There are some fixed, perfect things in Shakespeare, the sonnets being the most interesting. But, the, but something that just keeps uh, transforming itself, or being transformed, and is open to being transformed. And that seems to be part of it. I mean, otherwise it's hard to explain how Shakespeare has the life that he has in... Um, in Iran, uh, in South Africa, in China, in Japan. It just keeps, or for that matter, in Boston, Massachusetts in 2016, or in Bergen, Norway. It just keeps, the work keeps transforming itself. There's the life of the works, but there's also the life in the works, and, and, and Shakespeare's ability to create believable characters who have a life of their own. Would you say about yes, that? I, I find that an astonishing achievement on his part. I don't completely understand how he did it, though I, I can see certain what, what things one could say about how he does it. But I think one of the things that is most amazing about Shakespeare, as I say, they exist in, in relation to each other, the life in the works and the life of the works. Uh, the life of the works has to do with Shakespeare seeming to be able to identify. He very, very rarely, as you know, Charlie, he very rarely made up stories from scratch. He's almost always robbing somebody else. Uh, and well, maybe robbing is not fair. They had f fewer rules governing uh, plagiarism then. Uh, but he picks up and transforms. He, he sees what story uh, has the potential to keep going. Or that somehow he had something in him that enabled stories to seize him. If you look at the sources of Romeo and Juliet, let's say, I think it would be very hard-pressed to, to, to imagine that that story would keep going that way. Or even more, if you look at the, the source of, um, of Othello in Gerardo Cintio, uh, it's one small 
somewhat disappointing anecdotal story. Shakespeare saw something or it passed through him and then explodes with power. Uh, and um, so part of it is that, and part of it is connected to that, is that he saw something in the Moor, Othello, and in Iago, and in Desdemona that you couldn't possibly see if you actually just sat down and read Chintio's story, unless you were Shakespeare. And he actually managed to make them come alive in uncanny ways. For me, um, the most memorable section of your 2010 book, Shakespeare's Freedom, uh, was the interpretation uh, that the chapter you called The Limits of Hatred, where indeed you looked at Othello, Iago, uh, but also uh, the, the figure who was the, the primary focus was uh, the figure of the Jewish moneylender, Shylock, from The Merchant of Venice. And you've also written memorably about Shylock in, in other works. What is it about Shylock that, that, that fascinates you? And what, what is... What gives this figure such enduring vitality? I mean, Shylock is one of a series of Shakespeare characters, really, who uh, seem to, uh, we would say in uh, uh, slang, uh, got too big for his britches. Uh, he's way too big for his part in, in the play. We think of uh, the, the Merchant of the Venice, the title of the Merchant of Venice is referring to Shylock, but of course it doesn't. As you know, the, the Merchant of Venice, and the, the title is Antonio, the Christian merchant. Uh, Shylock's not a merchant, he's a moneylender, but the character somehow got way too big for the comic role that he was meant to play. And that wasn't the only time that it happened in Shakespeare, but it's one of the most remarkable times that it happens in Shakespeare, in which a character uh, seems to have just... Uh, grown vastly within Shakespeare's imagination. You know, we have almost no remarks attributable to Shakespeare about his own practice. He didn't, unlike his contemporary Ben Jonson, he didn't leave uh, a record of what he thought he was doing as a playwright. But one remark that is recorded in the 17th century, after Shakespeare's death, but relatively early, and it's it, it, uh, it's recorded by uh, an English poet named John Dryden, who says he got it from someone who got it from someone who knew Shakespeare and so forth, heard it from Shakespeare. You, know, you could take that with a grain of salt. Was that Shakespeare said that he had to kill Mercutio before Mercutio killed the play in Romeo and Juliet. That is actually uh, wonderful. He may really have said it, or as the Italians say, se non è vero e ben trovato, it's wonderful. Uh, observation anyway, that, that uh, Shil uh, Mercutio risks actually destroying Romeo and Juliet because he's too skeptical, too wild, uh, too risky for the, for the romance plot uh, of the tragedy. And Shylock simile is too, in this case, too tragic, too painful, uh, too overwhelming as a character for the simple villain of the piece that uh, Shakespeare seems to have, certainly that Shakespeare inherited, uh, and that he seems to have intended. So it's as if you're watching something grow in Shakespeare's own imagination in oversize for the uh, play that he's in. So that's part, at least, of what is fascinating about the character. But you, 
you still, in your writings too, you've highlighted how the Merchant of Venice is, is, is difficult because of this, this, this character for, for companies staging it. You know, this, it's, in some ways we think of, of Shakespeare's mixing of genres as a, a, a strength and a trademark, but maybe in this play actually it's, it, it's a bit of a problem too. It is a, well, the problem is largely Act Five. Shakespeare, the, Shakespeare's version of I had to get rid of Shylock before Shylock destroyed the play he didn't say this, but we can imagine him saying something like this, is to get Shylock off the stage for good at the end of Act Four. But the trouble is there is then Act Five. And you can see that Shakespeare had a hell of a time getting Act Five moving. I think Act Five is kind of a uh, catastrophe. Uh, though one shouldn't say these things uh, about Shakespeare. It's extremely hard for, uh, for actors to figure out, or directors to figure out what to do with Act Five. Now, 2016, what's often done, or really basically post-Holocaust, what's done in Act Five usually is to have Jessica, the daughter who's run away uh, from her father and uh, with the Christian fortune hunter and uh, repudiated her, her Jewishness and so on and so on, look miserable all through Act Five, sad, and sometimes uh, crying quietly on the side or, or singing the Kaddish, the Jewish ritual prayer for the dead for her deceased father whom was imagined to be deceased, not in the play. In other words, to make her miserable. Uh, and that's a complete, I mean, it's not a bad idea, but it's a complete invention. It's not in the play uh, itself in any obvious way. And that's because we feel something should be done to figure out how to get through Act Five, how to make, how to register the pain of what's happened before, how to reg register the sourness that seems to hover over everything uh, at the end uh, of the play. There is a kind of brilliance to the sourness, you could say. Uh, it's Shakespeare's acknowledgement of the fact that he can't quite get back to the comic plot that he intended to get back to. That's the, probably the best way of trying to justify what he'd what he does, but you can see that it's an incredible headache for any performance of the play. Shylock is just way too big. You, you mentioned the post-Holocaust context and in your late 70s reading of, of uh, Shylock in Marlowe, Marx and Antisemitism, that, that weighed rather heavily. Uh, in your, your 2010 reading, uh, you bring in a new context in a rather surprising way where you suggest there's a, a kind of analogy for a contemporary audience uh, in, in Shylock and a, a contemporary terrorist bomber from the East. Well, the, the, the alarm bells go off in The Merchant of Venice at the idea that there's a, uh, a group of people in an alien religion living alarmingly close to you who may wish you ill, who may want to kill you who are conspiring against you, uh, who have a different idea, a different relation to their daughters, different idea of, their, of, of, of the boundaries between um, right behavior and wrong behavior, between good and evil, uh, who have a vindictive relation, and with a kind of queasy feeling that it may be a little bit your fault, that maybe you haven't done the right thing. I mean, a whole mix of things that is actually, I think, almost irresistible in relation to the queasiness that is felt um, in, in Europe uh, 
but as we now understand, not only in Europe, but in the United States as well, uh, evidently about this group. And you know, it's not only 400 years since Shakespeare's uh, death, but it's 500 years this year since the creation of the Venetian ghetto, the first ghetto of its kind in Europe. Uh, and the ghetto, you can see, is, a, is an attempt to figure out, uh, you could say an early, perhaps we could, should say shameful attempt, but nonetheless an attempt to figure out how do you live with people you don't like or people you think are, you, want to, you need to deal with constantly but whom you're afraid of or whom you hate. And the idea was to shut them up at night behind locked doors so they can't come out at night at least and make them pay for the people who guard, who guard those doors incidentally. But you can see that it's an attempt to figure out, because there were people 500 years ago who said, just drive them out. I mean, the English had driven the Jews out in 1290. I mean, plenty of the Spanish and the Portuguese uh, after 1492 and 1498. And then in 1516, this idea of having them in your city, but in a special place. was, uh, was what the Venetians came up with. And you can see that, that Shakespeare is himself in his way negotiating with this very complicated inheritance. How do you deal with people? Shakespeare wasn't dealing, negotiating with because they were Jews in England. Not, that's not the issue. But he's interested in the idea of how you uh, deal with people whom you are extremely uncomfortable about, who seem dangerous. And of course, what the equivalent in England would have had to do with relations between Catholics and Protestants, specifically the group of Catholics who were not uh, who were um, not content with the Elizabethan settlement, which had, after all, made Protestantism the official religion. Just let me say, Charlie, that not so long. I mean, in terms of that aspect of things, not the Muslims, but but uh, aspect of the for us now. But in the early 17th century, as you probably uh, remember, I mean, a group of effectively Catholic terrorists uh, tried to blow up the king and parliament. Uh, I mean, that was the classic act. Put those gunpowder, those great barrels of gunpowder under the houses of parliament, blow the whole thing sky high. I mean, that's the sort of, that is the imaginary, as it were, out of which um, this whole idea of terrorism uh, could come. Your, your readings of Shylock uh, include some references to your own Jewish heritage. Uh, one can also find scattered uh, but intriguing references in your other works, for instance, in the acknowledgments prefacing marvelous possessions and in the prologue to Hamlet and Purgatory. How would you say this heritage has influenced your, your focus on issues such as cultural exclusion and the afterlife of religious ritual? It seems to be recurring concerns in your, yes. your writing. Well, in relation, first of all, to Merchant of Venice, it is actually an interesting experience to read a play like The Merchant of Venice and feel that you are imaginatively engaged with, in a peculiar way, with the villain of the play as well as with the romantic uh, hero and heroine. Um, it, it is a strange intensification of your uh, imaginative and uh, emotional life. 
so for myself personally, probably uh, insofar as I can access that moment, which I think I can back in my freshman year in college when I first read the play, I remember being startled and unnerved by this uh, depiction of the Jewish villain. But I guess I would say in the course of my, and I'll come back to that in its effect in a minute, over my life, but in the course of my lifetime now, looking back on it, what I think I see quite clearly now is that the experience that I had when I was 18 or 19, 18 years old, let's say reading the play for the first time and feeling startled by this torn and un unnerving identification with the villain, was conditioned, yes, by my fact, by the fact that I am Jewish, was brought up in a Jewish household and so forth, and felt myself Jewish. But I see much more clearly now than I think I did then that that's what the play means to do for everybody. Uh, for the, for, it doesn't matter whether you are a, a Lutheran, uh, a Catholic, a Jew, uh, that is what Shylock, how he functions in the play. That's what, what uh, the play puts it to you, and I happen to have a personal version of that, but you can't read the play as a sentient person, I think, and not have some version of that experience. So it, it's not, I have an ethnic history and I'm interested in it in the way that one is interested in one's own perspective and life, but it's only one very small autobiographical piece of a, of a much larger puzzle in which, in the case of Shakespeare, in which he's manipulating feelings that don't at all depend upon that particular uh, piece, that particular piece of the puzzle. It's interesting when you talk about manipulating. You've, you've, you've written uh, quite riv in a riveting way about um, the wonder of art and, and, and the, the pleasure we can get out of art. At the same time, in your, your book, Marvelous Possessions, you, you also focused on the other side of wonder, how, how wonder is something that can be constructed, uh, can be a strategy. Um, is there ever a sense where we should be suspicious about the, the wonder of, a, of, of, a, of, of a, a playwright like Shakespeare, his skill to, as you said, manipulate us as a, an audience? Uh, in some of your early writings, you, you talked about um, uh, Shakespeare's empathy as something that, that had different sides to it. Uh, that you were a little bit ambivalent about. Well, you know, at the end, at the end of Shakespeare's career, toward the end anyway, in The Winter's Tale, it's as if he's thinking about what he's been up to as, a, as an artist. Uh, and he comes up with not one, but two different images of what he's up to as an artist. One image is encapsulated in the strange witch-like character, but good witch-like character called Paulina, who has been somehow commissioning, fashioning, it's not quite clear, in, in, in her summer house, the statue uh, by, supposedly made by Giulio Romano that's gonna come to life. So the vision is of someone who has some extraordinary magic in her summer house, and she will stage this, this amazing vision which is the climactic vision of the play in which the statue of the uh, apparently dead Hermione comes to life and moves. That's one actually perfect image of how, after all, a brilliant playwright like Shakespeare makes abstract words on the page, fantasies in his head somehow come to life and move and 
actually come down and embrace you and kiss you. Uh, okay, that's one set of images. And then, very typically of Shakespeare, he comes up with a second set of images for what he's up to. And it's the con man, thief, cheat, Autolycus, uh, who is always pretending that he's been robbed. Uh, and then when you, he's lying on the, pretends he's lying on the ground being beaten. And when you go out of charity to pick him up, he reaches in and picks your pocket at the same time. Now, it, it, we have to credit Shakespeare with being able to see himself as picking your pocket as well as giving you this profound experience of transformative wonder. And I think that he understood those two things to be together. So Shakespeare's answer to your question would be, yeah, watch out that I might be picking your pocket at the same time I'm giving you a very great experience of wonder. Uh, one persistent theme in your research, uh, and, and indeed you've already alluded to it in, in our talk today, has been how cultures and texts cross borders and acquire a, a resonance, a new resonance, often a, a multi-layered one in new contexts. Uh, this might be said to, to underlie the, the focus on the, the early modern uh, revival of Lucretius's On the Nature of Things in, in your book, <coughs> The Swerve. And I gather you're currently working on a related theme of how the story of Adam and Eve has been reinterpreted through the ages. Um, you've also written a little bit more theoretically about the, the, the concept of cultural mobility, as you call it. Uh, how, how does such mobility work and why is it important? The simplest thing to say is that uh, what we think of as uh, fixed is never fixed. Uh, what we think of as decided is never decided. Uh, in the case of Adam and Eve, the earliest, I think it's fair to say, the earliest surviving uh, version of the story of Adam and Eve comes from the Nag Hammadi codices. Those were the books that were in a jar that was found by an Egyptian peasant in 1947 or whenever it was. Um, and he broke open the jar hoping to find gold and found some books. He thought that was disappointing, but it, uh, they, turn out to be, um, they turn out to be books that were hidden away probably in the, uh, uh, now I, third century, I think, uh, of the Christian era by Pacomian monks. They were much older, many of the books were older than that. And among those books are, are commentaries uh, versions of the Adam and Eve story, but versions of the Adam and Eve story read by these monks in, the, in Upper Egypt, in which the hero of the story is the snake, uh, it, or in one version, the hero of the story is Eve. Uh, why? Because, and the villain of the story is God, because no God who's worth worshiping would try to keep humans from knowing, having knowledge of the difference between good and evil. So that must be a bad god, and the snake must be the hero of uh, humans. Now, that version lost, as it were, that's why they had to bury these things away, and uh, they were only recovered in the 1940s. Uh, but they're a perfect instance of how surprising uh, and unfixed things that we think are settled actually are. So that to that community, at least several thousand years ago, the story meant exactly the opposite of what we think it means. For that matter, the, the story 
uh, of Adam and Eve is a story that's shared by the three great monotheisms, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, but the story means something profoundly different in Islam than it means in Christianity, and it means something profoundly different in Judaism than it means in Christianity or uh, Islam. So that it actually, the story as we know it, though we think of it as a Jewish story, the story as we understand it, we collectively thinking we know what the story is, is the product of, of a certain set of decisions made in the Christian community in the fourth century about, by Augustine and others, about the fall of man and the meaning of redemption and so forth and so on. Stories depend upon their context. Stories move about and mean things in different places. Uh, even stories, as I say, that seem as simple and as perfectly settled as that one does. And that particular story is that uh, I'm interested in the fact that humans all over the world seem to need origin stories, want to tell themselves stories about where they came from. Not every culture needs to, but actually many, many cultures seem to want to understand who the first humans were and want to understand where we came from, how we came out of that. So I'm also fascinated by the uh, by the range and variety of those stories and what meanings that they carry for the cultures that uh, embrace them. Will you be looking into Milton's version of the story? I am. I think that Milton's version of the story is particularly gripping because uh, 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 fascinating and, and it, to some extent it's a little bit like what I tried to argue in the Swerve which um, is a claim that has a certain controversial quality, which is that, that something actually happened in the Renaissance, that there isn't continuity with the Middle Ages here, that not just Milton, but if you add Milton and Albrecht Dürer and Cranach, I mean, a lot of other paint, Renaissance painters, that something happened to the Adam and Eve story in the Renaissance, which is the simplest thing to say was, is that a certain kind of reality was conferred upon the figures of Adam and Eve that caused tremendous problems for the story a little bit of like going back to what we said about Shylock and the Merchant of Venice or Mercutio, that is to say, in Milton, Milton, the brilliance of Paradise Lost is of course bound up with the fact that Milton's trying to imagine what Adam and Eve's marriage was like in Paradise before the fall, and they, what their sex was like, what their, their disagreements would have sounded like, uh, what, uh, how they had their, domestic arrangements, as it were, um, who, who cooked the food, who, uh, who had conversations. And the more Milton does this, the more real the characters of Adam and Eve become, the more untenable, the more unbearable the story of the, uh, the fall becomes to Milton himself, though he holds on to it like a drowning man. In more recent time, the, the, the story has been the subject for controversy in terms of um, feminist rewritings uh, uh, of it, uh, retellings of, of this together with other mythological stories. <coughs> and of course, in the States, you also have a kind of collision between uh, Christian, Christian belief in the traditional stories of, of Genesis with a scientific worldview. Uh, is this something you're going to address? I am interested in it. I'm, I haven't been to the, to the uh, uh, I think it's in Kentucky, the theme park in which you can ride on you, uh, dinosaurs and see Adam and Eve at the same time. I mean, they're, they're you know, it's easy to, <clears throat> it's easy to make fun of that um, uh, peculiar 
to me, deeply peculiar desire to hold on to the literal belief and the uh, truth of the story in the wake of several hundred years of geology and everything else that makes the story, you know, uh, you can't possibly, as it were, believe in it in those terms and at the same time hold on to almost anything that's happened in science for the last uh, uh, several hundred years. Really, since the it already begins to fall apart as believable starting in the late, in the 17th century, but we, we'll leave that aside. Um, but I'm not interested in making fun of people's tenaciously hold, held beliefs. I'm more interested in why the story seems so good to think with. Why the story, which is, takes a very small number of verses, a few pages and the enormous span of the Bible is so instantly memorable. Why it is so powerful as a story that after thousands of years, it still actually has, you see a little cartoon, a sketch of a naked man and woman, a, a little apple and a tree, nothing, uh, and you immediately get what it is. I walked in Bergen past the hairdressers called, I can't say it in Norwegian, Adam and Eva, uh, and, and with a little apple, and you know instantly what that is. Um, and the, uh, that, to me, is what's fascinating to go back to things we've talked about now, of the incredible um, radioactive power of stories, their li lives over long, long periods of time, why they're, they're uh, so gripping upon us, uh, and why they continue to live, in this case, even long after the story in a literal way becomes for at least for some people, impossible to hold. You know, it became impossible to hold on to, or it became difficult to hold on to already after 1492 because the Europeans kept encountering lots of naked people who didn't seem to be ashamed and weren't covering their genitals. And that didn't make any sense in relation to the stories. So they began to scratch their heads and wonder, how is this possible? I mean, so there's a long history of people having trouble, but the story doesn't simply die. The story instead becomes a kind of emblem for what literature is, for what fiction is, and why we need fiction. Why even uh, in the wake of the explosion of the, the emptying out of the, of the religious believability in any fundamental sense of the story, it becomes so still so gripping uh, as a tale. To, today there's Recently, there's been a good bit of talk about the crisis of humanities. Uh, would, would this be one way of responding to that, 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 that humanities help us not only tell, but in, interpret um, these kind of stories? What, what, what sort of role do the humanities have? I mean, I think that the humanities have a, a, a double role. They probably have more than a double role, but let's just say two for the moment. One is to, is to help you simply enhance your pleasure they, if the humanities are done well, they should give pleasure, first of all, in themselves. At least I try myself, and I hope I know other people try, not always, but try to write in such a way as to give pleasure to people reading it, because why should it be compulsory chapel? Why should it be painful and unpleasant? It should be, it's about works that give pleasure, and they should be pleasurable, and they should heighten the pleasure that you have. So that's part of the force of the humanities. But there's another part of the humanities, which is the fact that, that um, we spend our lives living in the midst of fictions. We, we may th not think we do, but we do. If you actually track how people spend their days, 
what television they watch, what movies they watch, now what they're watching on the little uh, uh, iPhones, um, what they listen to when they listen to political speeches, uh, what jokes they tell each other, what they dream at night. The number of hours in the day in which you're actually sort of living in fictions is kind of extraordinary. And, and I haven't even mentioned daydreams that people are having. So isn't it important to try to understand that element of our lives? Wouldn't it make sense that it, it would be critically important to try to understand, as the humanities tries to understand, that aspect of our lives? And then we could add to that, that's maybe specific to the aspect of the humanities, such as mine, that studies literature, just the part, uh, the, the enterprise of trying to understand what human beings are. What, what, uh, we can't only understand it in terms of, uh, of our biological structure, though our biological structures are critically important and probably part of the, of, of the larger, even fictional story, why we need these fictions. But we have to also understand them in terms of, of the dreams that we have the fantasies that we share, the longings that we experience, and the decisions that we'll have to make. We'll have to figure out. We're almost we're at the brink of being able to restructure ourselves genetically, to figure out how to enhance intelligence if we wanted to do so by changing our genetic structures. Do we want to do so? Who do you want to ask whether we should do so? You only want to ask uh, the technicians? No, you want to ask, you want to have a collective conversation about what we are as human beings. Would we want to try, for example, to eliminate the certain aspects of our being genetically and enhance other ones? Do we want to diminish the testosterone? That, uh, it's not an accident that males are responsible for most crime? Do we want to change males that way? Maybe, but let's have a conversation about it. And whom do we want to participate in the conversation?